Hi, this is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Private Enterprise Value Podcast. Here, we interview seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers who are striving for achievement and fulfillment. The striving typically leaves clues. Deconstructing the behavior of the highest performing EOMs, following their breadcrumbs in the woods, lets us learn a lot about peak performance and optimal experience. Our podcast is found on iTunes and SoundCloud at www.privateenterprisevalue.com and www.bigelowllc.com. In this podcast, we energize our interviews of high-performing entrepreneurs from a spectrum of domains by interviewing an extraordinary entrepreneur from the not-for-profit social sector, Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University what most education experts would call the most innovative university in the world today. Under the 15 or so years of Paul's leadership, SNHU has grown from 2,500 students to, get this, over 100,000 students. It is one of the largest not-for-profit providers of online education in the world and the first to have a full competency-based degree-granting program untethered to the credit hour. SNHU has received countless awards from a wide variety of admirers. Fast Company Magazine called SNHU one of the most innovative companies, and it was the only university on that list. LeBlanc was awarded the New Hampshire High Tech Council's Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and Forbes Magazine has listed him as one of its 15 classroom revolutionaries. Paul is a close friend of mine, and I have wanted to do this interview with him for over a year, so I'm absolutely thrilled to share this long-form interview with you. In this extraordinarily challenging time in higher education, where more colleges and universities are predicted to fail in the next 10 years than ever before in history, SNHU, led by Paul, has evolved from being a small, underperforming, little-known school serving local students to a global powerhouse university recognized for bringing affordable education to students for whom going to college is not a guarantee. Paul and I had an essentially private conversation between the two of us about some of the twists and turns over the last 25 years of his career that you will hear him describe. You can overhear the breadcrumbs he's left along the way for other high-performing entrepreneurs, the learning and unlearning, the knowing and not knowing. Our conversation was spontaneous, unrehearsed, unscripted. While I had an idea of directionally what themes I was intending to surface, Paul did not know what the questions would be in advance And as you'll surely detect, we didn't rehearse. There are a couple of surprises. You'll hear his terrific and insightful thoughts. Surely, you'll agree, he earns the title at SNHU of Storyteller-in-Chief. Our conversation was recorded at SNHU's headquarters on Elm Street in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire. Let us know if you like it. Here's the interview. So what was your first motorcycle? God. uh, And and when was it? It was in high school. It's a Honda 350. Um, used, beat up old thing that I sort of patched together. Yeah. And uh, hid from my mother, from my parents, <laughs> at a friend's garage in their garden sh- shed uh, because she had a brother who was killed on a motorcycle during World War II. Ah. Buried over in England, part of the war effort, Canadian Army. So she just had a thing about motorcycles. And I also had a passion for them. And I had ridden mini bikes and these things that we had put together before that. So I finally graduated to this bike. And I was doing great, hiding the secret. And then one day, wiped out on some gravel, slid across the pavement for a good 50 feet, ended up at Newton Wellesley Hospital while there was so with tweezers just picking out gravel and tar from the road rash up and down (laughs) my leg. No, you know, blue jeans that sort of disintegrate in the moment. Right. My mother found out. So yeah, the bike was did. gone for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, sort of had opportunities, rode friends' bikes through college, et cetera. And then when our kids were, when our kids were small um, and we lived in Vermont, I was driving by a Honda dealer, but the girls were with me. They were probably eight and six. And uh, so, you know what? I'm going to stop and look at a motorcycle. So we went in. Looked, I, said, hey, I took a little test ride while the girls hung out and bought a Shadow, Honda Shadow. 100 cc bike yeah and uh got to uh got back home and broke it to pat but made sure the kids were there so i couldn't get yelled at (laughs) and of course if you know my wife she's actually incredibly supportive so she was great about it she said i just had to increase my life insurance and if i got into an accident not linger she didn't want to do the 
ah, years of feeding yeah. tubes. Good so, thinking. So I thought, that's a deal. Um, and then I thought, eh, I got a bike, I got the leather jacket that I dug out that I hadn't worn in ages. And I said to the girls, we've got to name this thing. I need, a, I need a name for my new motorcycle. And our two little girls said, let's call it Mr. Kitty. <laughs> which sadly took it took all of the manly testosterone driven wow. glamour of yeah. my motorcycle right out of the room that's a high bar <laughs> so mr kitty was uh wow. was my uh, first bike back into man back into adulthood wow, that's great <laughs> well if you um if not counting motorcyclists or off-road motorcyclists if you could use a couple of nouns to describe what you do how would you describe what you do professionally today I think uh, a lot of my role is as storyteller-in-chief. Um, I think that when you are especially trying to drive change, you have to um, situate that, that work in a vision and, and, and be able to answer the big why question. And you know, Nick Kristoff uh, writes about this extensively. We're not wired, really, for data. I mean, we, like, we use data. We're in a data-driven culture. My organization uses data everywhere. Um, but, but as Christoph says, you can talk about a million people dying of starvation because of drought in East Africa, um, and their eyes glaze over. We're just not wired. Um, but if you tell one compelling story of a child who is dying of hunger, wallets open and people take action and the world responds. So I think that a lot of what my job entails is telling the story, telling it in a compelling way, getting people to rally behind it. That takes lots of forms, right? So that's the writing I do, it's getting in front of the team, it's getting in front of, uh, of our students, it's graduation where we tell our stories, and it's you know shining a light on the good work. I love that uh, title, Storyteller-in-Chief. Is that what you thought you might be when you were growing up? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, remember, I didn't speak English when we immigrated to this country, so... Uh, so, so let me interrupt you. So when we were in Los Angeles recently with uh, Mayor Garcetti, he described himself, memorably to me at least, as a uh, Mexican, Jewish, Italian American. How would you describe your your heritage? Uh, sort of a French, Canadian, Scotch, Irish mutt. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And I became an American on the one year anniversary of nine eleven, which is another story. But my relationship with language and storytelling is a is a complicated one because uh, my mom was a house cleaner. Um, and uh, my, both my parents had eighth grade educations, and we immigrated from a hard scrabble farming village in the Maritimes. So my mom would uh, work in a factory during the day. She worked until she was 76, actually. And, uh, and then on the weekends, she would clean people's homes in Weston, which is a very wealthy suburb of, of, uh, in the Boston area. Sure. And she would plunk me down when I was three and four years old. We had just moved in, into my fifth year in the libraries of these beautiful homes. I still have some, just that fills my heart with warmth to remember uh, her in the sound of a vacuum, and she sort of sang all the time. So somewhere in the house would be vacuuming and singing, and I would sit in these libraries that smelled of leather and wood. Old books. And, and I remember, you know, so I started with the children's books that they sometimes had for their own kids' past, and then kind of graduated up to the Frank L. Baum Wizard of Oz books. Yes, yes. Right. Those are hard. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, that's how I learned English. And... And of course, in school, right a year later, I was in, in, in school, kindergarten, first grade. But in my first grade, I had a teacher that, in some ways, were rather sadistic because my English was so poor. And she would make me stand in front of the class to read. Oh, I yeah. couldn't do it. Yeah. So uh, we lived next to a garage, and my mother would see me off, and kids still walked to school on their own back then. And that school was just around the corner. And I would, because I so hated going into her classroom and the prospect of having to do that, I would go behind the garage or hide behind the dumpster and then I would eat my lunch and then <laughs> I would look around and then I was pretty sure that six hours had gone by and I'd show up and pretend school had ended and I'm like, so what are you doing here? It's 8.30, 9 o'clock. <laughs> but for a little kid, that's our time field. That's you know? great. So it was actually the intervention of a, of a principal um, who kind of changed all that and, and got better behavior from the teacher, put me in a different class, actually. So, so then I became an English major later on, which is the irony about this whole thing. So I think, you know, people say that, I, some people say that I'm a good writer, I like to write, and yet I feel like that storytelling is rooted in, I don't know, the challenge of trying to overcome language and understand language. And do you think that that, uh, that experience could have led to your passionate interest in education now? 
I think um, for sure. I think for me, reading from those earliest days has been transporting. Yeah. And uh, I think education at its best is transporting. So I think at its very roots, yes. I think the passion I feel about the work we do today, which is so much about providing opportunity and hope to people for whom college is not usually a guarantee and who might not be well served by higher ed today, is really rooted in my experience of you know the immigrant kid of two people who had eighth grade educations um, and access to affordable higher ed, the first in my family to go to college, first in my neighborhood. We didn't know anybody who went to college. Right. College was for the sons and daughters of the people whose houses my mom cleaned. Yes. Um, but she remembers a sixth grade teacher, Mr. Schlafman, um, who's a great teacher, who in a parent conference one day, she remembered this till the day she died at age 96, said to her, you know, Paul could go to college someday, and it was like a lightning bolt. Because no one we knew went to college. Like, that's not the dream we get to dream. And she got it in her head that this would happen. She didn't know how. She didn't understand how that worked. She didn't know how we'd pay for it. But it was this notion, you're going to go to college someday. And if you've read Hillbilly Elegy, yes. which is a book of, for which I have lots of criticisms, but I think one of the things that really resonated with me is that his grandmother, Mima, I think he calls Mama. her Mama in the yeah. book, yes. um, believes that he is going to be better than this life into which that he was born. Right. And I think you need to have someone who believes in you. And in some ways, the job we do right now is to persuade students that we believe in them and that they can do this work. So I look at my daughters and where they are in life, a life that their grandparents could scarcely imagine. And the thing that created that trajectory was higher education. Right. So from a very visceral sense, to answer your question, that's why I'm really passionate about what we do. From an intellectual sense, I know it's the one thing that makes a difference. We know that, that you know, most people born into poverty today, there's a 65% chance you will live and die in poverty. The one thing that changes that equation is education. Right, right. So you mentioned in your story just now that uh, you at one time were an English <laughs> literature professor. Where was that? Uh, so I was at Springfield College. So I started um, in graduate school when I was at Boston College. And on the day before classes, got a phone call saying there's been a spot open up for a teaching assistant. Would you like it? And by the way, it means free tuition and a stipend. I was like, of course I would like that. Right. I just signed off on a modest educational loan because I worked all the way through college and paid my way through college. But I had a little loan and thought, I could buy a really great stereo with that money now. <laughs> Not a story I should be sharing. <laughs> but I, uh, that was my first teaching. And they gave me a pile of books. And books are like, what were they thinking teaching? Uh, you know, we were asked to teach things like Samuel Pepys' Diary of Samuel Johnson, oh, yeah. a college freshman at BC. It's yeah. a great book, but really for freshmen? Um, and Tristram Shandy, in these books, he thought, wow. Um, so that was my first experience, and I loved it. And uh, I like to think I was pretty good at it. I was scarcely older than the students in front of me when I think about it now. Then went on to a, do another teaching assistantship at the University of Massachusetts and loved that work. Um, yeah, so it's been, and then it was a faculty member at Springfield College and, and became a department chair there. Yeah, and so I think, um, I don't remember where this uh, information came from. I don't think it was from you. I think it was from an independent source. But the word was that early in your career at Springfield College, you might have been a bit of a rabble-rouser as a faculty member. Do I have that right? Uh, yes. Uh, was there a specific incident with uh, a fax machine in a newspaper and the president of the college? I was the uh, president of the faculty senate as an untenured faculty member with hair down on my shoulders and an earring and sometimes a ponytail, and uh, which is hard to believe now, I know. Um, and we had subsequent votes of no confidence in the president. And had real that, that had really come to a head. And it had become known to us that one of the things that the trustees feared is that we would actually unionize. This was a particular fear for that, for that trustee, that set of trustees. So we... Um, we penned a, a memo, a fake memo, that uh, talked about how we would unionize and the steps for doing so, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the kind of memo that ostensibly would have been shared among the faculty. And we faxed it to the local newspaper as an anonymous tip, like, hey, these guys are talking about this stuff. And they ran an article about it. And that, that subsequently led to an emergency meeting with the board, a kind of phone call to my house that said, 
be at the Marriott Hotel tonight at 8.30. <laughs> and uh, don't say a word of this to anybody. And I remember thinking, what the hell, I'm about to be fired, you know? And, and you know, uh, showed up and had a tense meeting with the board's leadership that said, you've won, but now you need to stop. You need to let us do this on our own time. And I remember saying, what's your time? I don't know if that's acceptable. Um, and what was I thinking? <laughs> and I remember, you know, a couple of them pretty livid. And, uh, and they said, within three months, you'll be gone. So we've let things die wow. down, and that was the deal. And it, I don't know that the letter was not the reason they capitulated, but it was the thing that started the conversation in that way. So with that sort of background, and you undoubtedly had a point of view and, and good reasons behind feeling that way, uh, after uh, some other career moves, you became the president of Marlboro College. And now you're the CEO and president of Southern New Hampshire University. And I just wonder, as the president of Marlboro College and now as a CEO of Southern New Hampshire University, how do you, what about this job surprised you from this seat compared to looking at it from the seat you were at at Springfield College? I think, um, you know, I was pretty clueless at Springfield College. Who was I to sort of weigh in on the president's adequacy or not? We're not really fully understanding the job. But as a faculty member, you understand it from that very singular perspective. And in that sense, in terms of how he was managing the institution and how he was relating to people, I thought um, he was dramatically deficient. Right. And you could sort of see the way the culture was reacting across the board. And, and, and I remember in a meeting, because he had been given many opportunities to right the ship in some ways, um, or to hit the reset button, but I remember in a meeting where, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember in a meeting where his arrogance um, shone through and his disdain for accountability shone through. And I, and I thought to myself that day, and I've always held this, um, if I know I'm in the wrong, I will always say so. Own it. And that when you do, people are actually pretty forgiving. Mm. Um, and, and it's one of the lessons that I've taken here, and I think it's resulted in a kind of transparency that I would not have been able to describe as a faculty member, to go back to your question, mm -hmm. but which I think has served well and has been important to me here. Transparency with my own board. I don't think you know the folks who sit on this board are ever surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, transparency within the institution about what we're trying to do and why. That storytelling and chief sort of role again. I think... Um, I don't think anyone not in the role uh, fully appreciates how political these jobs are. So when um, someone once said presidents are the living logos of their institutions. So when you're out in the community, you know, you people associate you with the place that right. you represent and right. how you behave, um, the scrutiny that internal stakeholders give to everything you do, what you drive, where you live, who you're seen with on campus. It's pretty constant, and I teach a, in a program for new presidents at Harvard every year, um, and we tell people, even if you've reported to the president, even if you've been that close, you are not prepared for this next piece. And, and when we talk to people a year and two years out, that's what they say, like, I had no idea. Right. Everything is screwed, every word. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I sort of learned it the hard way. You know, um, when I took the presidency at Marlboro College, this monkey little liberal arts college in the uh, hills of southern Vermont I was interviewed by the Boston Globe and I was going on and on about how great the place is right because that's what presidents do you're cheerleaders for your institutions and and then I have this rhetorical twitch <laughs> which is I think born of New Englanders where you know you're not supposed to brag too much so when I was going on and on about the college I said this so self-deprecating oh look it all the kids dress in black and smoke too much but that's kind of what you get blah 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 so what was the pullout that the Globe put? All the kids dress in black and smoke too much. Wow. And the next morning at 5 a.m., my phone rings, and the head of master goes, what did you say? And I was like, <laughs> no, that was a joke. And I was like, and he's like, that, you know, people are up in arms. There's all this sort of stuff going back and forth on email. It's thankfully, before social media really took hold. <laughs> and um, we had a town hall meeting of governing, and we had one later that week. So I showed up dressed. I said, uh, dress in black wearing earrings and smoking too much. So I showed up all in black with a cigarette in my hand and earring, <laughs> and that diffused everything. But it was a way of saying, look, I know, I'm sorry, I screwed yeah, I'm up. Sorry, and right. then I explained what happened. Right. But I learned a lesson, right? So you learn a lesson about media. But 
Um, no, it's it's interesting. Like I, I wonder how Marlboro survived me. And one of the nice things about having recently turned 60 and doing this job now for um, almost 22 years between the two schools is you know stuff. But you have perspective. Um, don't want to get to a place where you're not wholly energized and, and just pumped up to do the work and imaginative and engaged. Um, but you also have the sort of sense of, I've seen some of this come around the track before. I know how to deal with this. Um, I was clueless as a faculty member on these questions. So uh, you have made another interesting transition, though, recently, haven't you, where uh, at SNHU, you now have a university-wide COO, and you have a new uh, university college president. And so I'm imagining that has you transitioned to another fairly different role. Uh, how do you think about that now? It's interesting. The board actually raised the idea of a CEO about three years ago at a time when, even though we were going through this meteoric growth, fastest growing university in the country, I felt like I could both do all of the external representation of the university and the demands that that includes, but also do and keep my arms around the operations. I'd always prided myself on two things, knowing the details and knowing everybody. I could walk through this place and know, and people would say, like, you know everybody by name. And some of that's just the good luck of having some piece of my brain that's good with names. You know, it's a politician's gift um, when it happens. Um, so at the time, I said to the board, I, I think I'm good. I appreciate that. But I kind of like having my arms around. I like the internal work. I like being on top of that. And I also like the external. It was actually this past year that I went to the board and said, I think you were right. Or at least I think it's right, the right idea now. So we uh, circled back to the idea of a COO and really recognized that my job has shifted. We've become a much larger organization. We're about $740 billion this year in size, over 100,000 students, 10,000 full and part-time employees. I don't, know, I don't know everyone's names. I was in a meeting this morning where I had to ask everyone to introduce themselves and tell me what they do. <laughs> um, and I think the other recognition we had is that the external opportunities that are now afforded us, the place where we now play, both internationally, federal policy levels, partnering, foundations and philanthropy, those are more than a full-time job. Um, and, and that's where I'm best of use to the university. And in reality, the person who stepped into the COO role, uh, and we've worked together for now almost 14 years, um, is better in terms of execution than I am, more disciplined, I think, in that work. Um, and uh, we are grounded in exactly the same place in terms of values and mission. So I can sleep uh, very well at night knowing that any question that gets in front of her that I can't be part of, she could take. Right. Um, and, and we are always aligned. And that's, that's a huge relief, and it's allowed me to really push hard on the external, let's allow her to do a better job with internal management than I was doing before she was in that role. So some of the people listening to the Private Enterprise Value podcast, uh, many of them are super successful entrepreneurs in some domain, and many of them have to uh, go through some transitions maybe like this in their careers. Doing what, making the transition that you're making successfully requires you to say no to some stuff, right? What can you share with us about what you found as a way to say no to invitations or obligations or things that you know would be fun to do or that maybe in your prior role you would have done, but now you realize you can't do? So I think um, really taking the time, as Amelia, my COO, and I did, to think through the work. And we created three categories. So one was, um, I want to be an FYI, and I, want to, and I can be distant. The second one is, I don't need to be very involved, but I want input. And the third is, I want to own this. And that could be a decision-making thing, or it could be an activity. And it sounds very sort of pragmatic, and it is. But the success of those relationships and the success of that transition depends on the everyday pragmatic decisions of how you spend your time, what you say no to, what you say yes to. And that has been a valuable exercise. And we we are doing something that can look a little clumsy right now, but we check in a lot on that question. So it can be something as simple as we have a memo going out to the leadership team about some really important work, and we're going to ask people to clear their calendar, and they're not going to like some of what we're asking. Not because it's bad work, but because, like, no, we need more time than we have currently scheduled with you. 
and it's really all about operational internal alignments. And I said, uh, I'll, you know, I'll send that out, blah, blah, blah. I'll explain the following things. I said, no, wait a minute, Amelia, this is internal. I think you probably should be sending this out. And she said, yeah, I'll, I got this. Right? And it's, Great. it's kind of a discipline to stop your natural instinct to do the thing you've always done because right. it's habit. You're pretty good at it. Like I know I can write that. I can write that memo really well. Sure. Um, but if I'm not right, if I'm not taking 15 minutes to write that memo, I'm taking 15 minutes to be on a phone call with a foundation head. Right. I mean, there's, it's it's that sense of time is our most precious resource and how we allocate it. So you alluded a couple of times to you know things that you're good at or things you're not as good at. Maybe Amelia's better at. Uh, we use a concept we call unique ability. You've heard me talk about this before. It comes from my friend Dan Sullivan. Do you have a sense or uh, of your unique ability? Or if you asked your closest friends, what would they say is your unique ability? The thing that you do better than anyone else? Um, so I don't know if you would describe unique abilities as also being things that can be the flip can be like you know our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness definitely i think i process fast and that's great if you are multitasking and you're have a lot of balls in the air and you're running an increasingly complicated and large organization um the problem the flip side of that is there are a lot of things which you have to slow down your processor and really take the time to work through so I think I make, generally speaking, pretty good decisions pretty quickly, but not all the time. And uh, so I think people would say, uh, my strength is a combination of processing fast, so being able to kind of quickly get to, okay, here's what we need to do, boom, 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 boom. Um, and, and then I think I communicate really well. Yes. Um, and I, th I really would ascribe that to, uh, three degrees in English literature. So uh, you learn some things from literature, right? You learn empathy, you inhabit other people's worlds, right? That's what literature right. does. Um, and I think I'm pretty good about thinking about my audience and what they need and being able to do it, tell a compelling story. So if you put those two things together, the ability to very quickly get decisions made and sort out what needs to get done, and then the ability to tell the story in a way that gets people on board that's been, I think, pretty effective. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, and, and it's called leadership, by the way. But, so uh, you would be considered a thought leader by anyone in your domain who knows you. Um, I'm just uh, curious, as you look at other domains and you do other thinking and reading, who do you consider to be thought leaders that you look to, in either in this domain or in others? Uh, I, I tend to think less about this question in terms of people and and rather in terms of places I look so and that, that's not to say there aren't individuals so Atul Gawande um, medical writer for the New Yorker right um, somebody who I've read all of his books I think healthcare is very analogous to my industry mm -hmm. and I look a lot at healthcare so you know if you think about it it's a highly regulated industry with third-party payers with highly trained some would say somewhat independent actors, doctors, in our case, faculty members, they don't believe they report up to a dean and to a president. They have a direct reporting line to God in many instances. So, you know, so I look to, to, to healthcare. Uh, Clay Christensen, uh, hugely influential in my world. We met well before he was famous when he was the president of a ceramics company on a basketball court playing, playing hoops at six o'clock in the morning uh, in Cambridge. And we've had a lifelong friendship but, of course, Clay went on to do incredibly important work around disruptive innovation, et cetera, jobs to be done theory. We use his playbook here all the time. Right. And, uh, and I think a lot about, uh, about Clay. And, you know, we've taken to bringing our trustees once a year on this sort of traveling slash learning meeting because I'm a real believer in looking at other industries and how people are coping with and, and, and running with the kinds of changes that are underway in the world. So in a recent meeting in Los Angeles, we had a panel with somebody from the music industry, from the film industry, and from the distribution industry. What we say to them is, make no connections to hire it. That's our job. But tell us about what's happening in your world. How's technology changing it? How are the business models thus changing? Who are the winners? Who are the losers? What's possible that wasn't before? What's falling away? I find those conversations scintillating. I, my, I just want to, you know, I think about them for days and weeks later. 
So I think it's really where you look um, for me, uh, more than even what individuals. I, I'm a fan of many people, yeah. whether it's Angela Duckworth, like I mean, the world of education, you think about all the folks that we think about, but it's really the industries, the places. Great. So, you know, uh, with entrepreneurs and here, uh, both in the Private Enterprise Value blog and in the podcast, we think a lot about goals and we think a lot about behaviors to achieve those goals. And then those behaviors, when they're repeated enough times, that muscle becomes a habit. What are your best habits? Um, that's a really good question. It's uh, I think the, I think uh, when we have done the various sort of personality tests, et cetera, that every sort of team goes through, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or any of the others, uh, I rate very, very high on empathy. The highest rating is actually empathy. And I think I do a pretty good job uh, understanding what people need. And that can be from a market perspective as we think about who we serve and the job to be done. It can be from somebody who reports to me who's struggling with something that they're engaged in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think I have, a, like coaches that I admire, I think I have a sense of when I can push and when I need to pull back, when someone needs a pat on the back, when someone needs. And in the end, if you're doing really ambitious work at scale, um, you're doing much less of the work and you're managing the talent. A lot of my job I would describe as talent management. Right. Storyteller in chief and talent management. Those are really the two big pieces of my job. And um, I think empathy serves very, very well uh, in that. Um, I think I have... Can that ever become a weakness? Yeah, so I think it's uh, sometimes uh, I could uh, reasonably be accused of holding on to people in positions too long when their performance doesn't justify that. Right. So I think um, surfeit of empathy, um, maybe that uh, one doesn't take action quite as quickly uh, as one might. Um, I think people in some cases for all of my comments about being able to process quickly, I think sometimes I find myself less willing to judge or get to a place of judgment with people that for some of my folks I would say, Why, what are you not seeing here? Why don't you get this? Sure, I get um, that. So I think, um, I think that can sort of get in the way sometimes. There are worse qualities that a man can have. I suppose, uh, I suppose. So um, many, maybe even most of the owner managers who listen to this podcast would do what they do in, I would say, relative anonymity. They um, frequently found and guide organizations that provide services or technology or manufactured products as components to somebody else's product. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to kind of have the freedom almost to do what they do in terms of that anonymity. In the past five years, uh, maybe I should say before five years ago, maybe that was more true of you, but in the past five years, You've been on every radio broadcast and podcast and news station and newspaper, and you have developed a, a very public name, image, and reputation. Um, I'm imagining that could be challenging at times, but I wondered if you would say, what's really great about that? Has there been a part of that that's been really good for you? So I, th I think um, on the sort of too much reveal <laughs> level. I think as a sort of, you know, working class kid who often felt as a bit of an outsider, there is a kind of approbation that comes with that that feels like, no, you like you've done good work. Yeah. And one could say, well, yeah, like you don't know that you've done good work, but still it matters. Um, External validity. Yeah. And, and I think that um, I've, I've know people in my life who need very little of it because they have all the internal validity that is required. <laughs> but um, I can still remember I did a stint heading up a technology startup for Houghton Mifflin Company. Um, and I had been, so this was an important investor relationship relations meeting that was coming up. And I had been rehearsed and prodded and honed my script with all of the investor relationship team at Houghton Mifflin at the time. And I remember the corporate lawyer who was along with us for Houghton, just before I was walking in the room, looked at my suit and said, wow, that's a bold choice for this time of year. 
and it was completely unnerving to me. Ah. Like, and I just thought he was such a jerk. Yeah. Right. It was like such a, <laughs> a if I if I could see him today, he's probably an old man, but I'd still punch him in the nose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think you know, getting to this place in my career, that kind of external approbation, I don't know it just feels good. It feels like you know, it's nice to be recognized for the work. What What's the worst thing about achieving some fame? But before I, I if I could just add one thing, yeah. the, the, the second thing I would say about it, though is you know, it's most valuable for what it does for the university. It brings credibility to the extent that people say, you know, LeBlanc is doing good work at SNHU. It's a sense, the extension of that is an SNHU is doing good work. And if that gets me in front of people who, as they did recently, make seven-figure commitments to educate refugees and DACA recipients, that's at the heart of our mission. Like right. it, it is, that's where the real value is. My sense of approbation doesn't matter to the world. My ability to educate a thousand DACA recipients matters. And I often say to our People, you know, there's that sort of simple little overly simplistic exercise, which is, you know, if you want to know if your organization matters, ask the question, would anyone miss you if you weren't here? And I can, I tell people all the time, like thousands of people would miss us if we weren't here. Single moms trying to get an education at night with, you know, after their kids are gone to bed would miss us, veterans would miss us, refugees would miss us, DACA recipients would miss us, go down the line, right? right, right. And I'm really proud of that fact. So, so I think that, that's the good thing that comes with being a little bit better known in the industry is that you bring a lot of credibility to your organization. Is there a downside? Um, I like to be frank, I like to be political, I like to express my opinion, I like to be a bit of a wise ass, all of those things get tempered a little bit. Because if I get the blowback, that's one thing, but if it hurts my institution, that's that's irresponsible for my role. And, um, and sometimes in, in a public uh, setting like that, you get some, um, public criticism or negative feedback on your actions or yep. your behavior. How do you deal with that? Um, I, so I try to ignore that, which I should. So for example, we just announced this ambitious um, initiative to educate a thousand DACA recipients. Well, in social media, given the times we live in, there are people who've been pretty outright racist, virulent, and cruel. and. I'm not gonna change their minds. There's no response to that. So you let some of that slide. There have been others who I think, um, if perhaps strident, also exhibit a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of the issues. And that I try to be, you know, we're educators, so enlightened. So I just finished a long blog post that says, you know, here's some of what I heard, here's the reality um, and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and then there are lots of instances where I think uh, humor, a little kidding, uh, go a long way. And then sometimes you call people outright for their accountability. So there have been, it's interesting to me that we've had occasions, I'll give you one real quickly. Uh, we had a faculty member who did just a genuine dumb thing recently, but it made it into social media, it became viral, which is she insisted to a student that Australia was not a country, that it's a continent. Well, of course it's both. And uh, this got picked up on and there's nothing like the ire of incensed uh, Australians. <laughs> so I had lots and lots of emails. And there was one that was particularly over the top and going on and on, basically how stupid we are, the university is, Americans are, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of finally just wrote back and a little bit of impatience and said, you know, one of the things I love most about your countrymen is I typically have a great sense of humor. And none of them would make the fundamental mistake of confusing one person's admittedly dumb misstep with all of their colleagues countrymen, et cetera, and kind of walked through and, and pointed out that this was a very well-educated faculty member who's not a stupid person, but did a stupid thing, yeah. and we all do those, um, and, and kind of went on and, and said, like, you know, if I could use a phrase forward from my Australian colleagues, don't get your knickers in a twist, have a good laugh, and know that we took care of it. We took care of the student, we took care of everything. He wrote back and apologized. Nice. Um, and explained that he's sort of despondent about America these days and that he always looked up to it and he had to just reinvent it. Right. But that happens a lot. Sometimes, and especially in the world of social media, where it's easy in the relative anonymity of posting that you can sort of say anything that you wouldn't necessarily say face-to-face, that if you call people on it graciously, but you call people on it, they sort of get their heads back together again. That's great. So... Over the years, you and I have talked about how many of the high-performing people we know in many different domains are um, sort of continuous, curious, passionate readers. 
and we, you and I sort of looked at the ceiling together and said, wow, we you know, know these people who they just read continuously all the time, and they're frequently referring us new reading and things they found interesting. Are there uh, one or two or three books that you feel like have greatly influenced you? Overall, sort of in a lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, there's a great book that I love uh, very much taught by Nick Hornby called High Fidelity. And uh, in that case, the main character is a huge music lover. And when he's asked to name his top 10 songs, he completely freezes. And as someone who's grown up as a sort of literature major and a veteran reader, I'm in the Virgil Book Club, I always have three books going, um, your question has that same sort of effect. <laughs> <laughs> like this week, last month, when I was in a bad mood, when I, you know. Um, so I think, you know, I'm reading um, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Da Vinci right now. Yeah. So the book I'm reading is often um, the book that is uh, most powerful. And I know that's not a good answer, but. Problem. The problem with empathy is that whatever character I'm reading about, like oh, that's me. Like you know, I'm also hypochondriac, right? It's the same thing. If I <laughs> if I hear the warnings at the end of a drug commercial, I'm pretty sure I have all of those terrible symptoms that they talk about. So you know, right now I'm loving Isaacson's book, and I love it in fact because I think you know his project, whether it's the Jobs book or the Einstein book, I think his central project is to help us understand that the world of creativity and art. And the world of science are actually not disconnected. They are actually, in the best minds, deeply interconnected. Right. And I love that idea. Right. Um, I read, because I love literature, I finished uh, Patricia Lockwood's book, Priest Daddy. It's one of the most uh, fascinating, wonderful books that I've, I've read in a long time. Uh, it, 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 I realized, I kept, you know, it was 50 pages in thinking, I don't get her sentence structure. Like, I don't get, like, where, how did this imagery, and then... Uh, someone told me, she's a poet. I thought it all makes sense, ah. and it's um, it's so it's a book that I think is laugh aloud funny. Particularly anybody who grew up Catholic as I did, lapsed or not, you would get a huge kick out of this. And then it goes into pretty dark, troubling places in this really interesting way. And I and I think um, a book that I'm recommending to everybody. I think it was on the New York Times top ten for 2017. Um, I don't read a lot of business books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually, I, I feel like I learn more in other places. I certainly learn more from nonfiction. Again, sort of reading healthcare, uh, reading Atul Gawande. Yeah. I give a lot of people a copy of his book, Better. Yeah. And I think Better is such a great book because it's easy for most of us to go into a dysfunctional organization and fix it because if you are really only even a reasonably good manager and leader, you can quickly discern what needs to get done and you can take a place far. It's really hard, as he argues, to take a place that's really, really good and make yes. it better. Yes. And I love, you know, do you, if you remember, you know, what he argues, uh, spoiler alert here for anyone who hasn't read the book, but, you know, it comes down to these things. It comes down to always do the right thing. And we talk about that all the time here at the university, particularly when it comes to serving students. It comes down to innovation, you know, and we say in our vision statement, we relentlessly challenge the status quo. It's not interesting to me when someone, after a disaster or a bad situation, says, what could we have done differently? Like, that's the obvious question. I love people who, when things go really well, say, how could that have been better? Like, those people, for me, are gold. um, Because that's that sense. I just want to drive to be better. Um, And then then innovation, right? so always, always sort of tweaking. So, um, so I think you know those are the those are really critical, um, and I love that book for that for that reason. I love the Atul Gawande story uh, in one of his articles that was published in the New Yorker, and he came and spoke to the Bigelow Forum about this story one year, and uh, it's a story about how he was uh, on vacation from being a surgeon. And he was uh, wanting to uh, bat the tennis ball around. Evidently, in Ohio, where he grew up, he was a state-ranked tennis mm. guy in, in high school and maybe even in college. And so he went to the place where he could get balls and rackets, and they said, no, you have to be with a pro. And he said, uh, well, no, I just want to bat the ball against the backboard. They said, you have to be with a pro. It costs $40 an hour. And finally, he gave in and said, oh, okay, whatever. I'll be with a pro. And the pro came out, and the pro was a 17-year-old. And Atul was probably by then maybe 42, 45. And uh, 
said, you know, I've been the state champion. I was the team college tennis champion. And he said in 15 minutes, the young 17-year-old said to him, when you serve, why do you throw your left arm back that way? He said, what do you mean? He said, you're throwing your left arm back, it's throwing your serve off. And he said, I realized when I walked back to my cottage that he helped me more in that 15 minutes by having a coach than ever I had had in the past 20 years, just by having an outsider. I really appreciate that story because I think so often those of us who have reached some success in our profession, it's actually more and more challenging the more successful you are to get objective feedback and get great coaching. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I had a great mentor, uh, Elizabeth McCormick, who now is in her late 90s, but she, former nun, president of Manhattanville College, and then right-hand person to Lawrence Rockefeller. And uh, she was the advisor to um, a remarkable array of very high wealth, famous Americans, Jerry Kohlberg, you know, co-founder of KKR, um, Chuck uh, Feeney, who founded Atlantic Philanthropy. Yep. These are billionaires. Um, she wouldn't take a penny from them. She wouldn't take anything from them. And I asked her about that one day. And she said, you know, these are people who are at a place in their careers where everyone says yes. And it's really, really hard to get honest feedback because everyone's invested in some way. Um, I don't take anything so that I can give them my honest take on whatever they ask. That's great. And, uh, and I watched their near reverence for her because they knew if they asked Elizabeth for advice or counsel or coaching, they would get an absolutely honest opinion. That's great. It's really valuable stuff. Um, so I, yeah, I think, I think everyone benefits. I'm actually, for my own team, we, do a, we use a lot of coaches. We urge it often. It's funny, sometimes if someone's new to our team, they first hear that as, am I screwing up? And it's like, no, you're doing a great job. That's why you need a coach. Yeah, right. Trying to build on your strengths. Yeah, yeah. But that's a funny, con that's a funny concept to people. I'm doing a great job. Why do I need a coach? It's like, no, it's just like when you need a coach. Right. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Gawani did a great piece, I think, in The New Yorker about coaching when he talks also about inviting a retired surgeon into exactly. the surgeries. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, let me ask you a few um, questions to summarize. Uh, so if you were giving some advice to some high school parents of high-performing high schooler um, who wants to go to a university, what advice would you give to a university? I think, um, so one is, I think we have made that decision so overly pressurized for young people, I feel badly for them. And the reality is, it's the old sort of saying that not everyone will get the school they love, but everyone loves the school they get. The reality is that high-performing kids will do great in any school they attend. Um, if you took the entering class at Harvard and sent them to Miami-Dade Community College, I venture to say they would not only be as successful in their careers if they went to Miami-Dade, they might be actually more successful because they went to Miami-Dade. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting example of this in Texas where they had a scholarship program where the top student in every high school in Texas would then go to the flagship. And what they realized is that because that is an inherently equitable model, right? So the poorest, most low-performing high school still gets to send its top student um, to the flagship. And once there, the students from the worst high schools performed every bit as good or better than the graduates from the best schools, when arguably it should be some sort of scale. So your kid's going to be great. If they're high-performing, they'll be high-performing. Uh, worry less about that. I think another uh, second piece of advice I would give uh, in a very practical sense, is I think that people are taking an inordinate amount of debt and they get very irrational about that choice of schools. So because Sally loves that school doesn't mean you should cash in your retirement for it. So that's a very practical question. But I think the most important question is uh, this is a generation of young people uh, with a deeper yearning for a sense of meaning and value at a time when they feel like those are no longer derived from the institutions that have long served. Uh, 
and helping students get that sense of meaning to find out um, not only what matters to them, but how they feel they can matter. Both sides of that coin is really critical. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean college right out of high school. For some, a gap year, a meaningful gap year could be the case. Uh, for some, it could be something less than the bachelor's degree, which is kind of still the gold standard. So an associate's degree and then going to work. It could be the military. There are lots of ways of getting at that. And Todd Rose at Harvard, who wrote The End of Average, you know, reminds us that there isn't one single right path. And I think there's a lot of pressure. I've been on, uh, on planes, you know, and you're sort of striking up a conversation with your seatmate. And they, know, they learn I'm in higher ed, and then they proudly talk about where child number one went and child number two. And then there's this moment when they kind of get this look on their face and go, well, our youngest, he's kind of a handful, and they almost apologize that he didn't go to college. And in many instances, they're doing great stuff. Right. I thought, nothing to apologize for. Right. Um, we, we, that's not the narrative around college today and our sort of winners and losers notion of, of the future. And I think it's unfortunate because, if anything, um, we are seeing a great proliferation of pathways. We know that the old industrial model of two or four years of college when you're 17 will not suffice anyway. We are going to go in and out of a learning ecosystem. More important for people to be lifetime, lifelong earners with a real sense of their grounding. Why? What matters to them? Why they matter? Right. That's, that's the question. So... What's the worst advice you hear given to high school uh, graduates or their parents? Uh, all around uh, career choices. Career choices. Yeah. It's, it seems like to me one of the least sensible things to do. Seems right? kind of premature. Not only is it premature, why would we ask a 17-year-old, God, you know, uh, think about what we didn't know. Think about what preoccupied us at 17. So look, at if someone knows that they have wanted to be a doctor since age two, great. Let them go on that path. That's not most people. And we know that a very high percentage of students when they get to college will change their major. What that tells me is that conversation in high school is pretty useless. Um, the third is that we are now in a world where work is fundamentally changing at a velocity that we've never seen before. We know that with automation and AI, whole swaths of jobs will go away, new ones will be invented. It's going to be far more important to be able to learn than the subject of that learning at age 17 in your freshman year. Um, we also know that majors, frankly, are not that interesting any longer. The most interesting work is happening at the intersection, intersection of, of disciplines. Um, so there are lots of ways of thinking about this, but interestingly, the liberal arts, which have become for now a long time the most maligned of majors, may be the most important useful majors going forward. And people sort of give lip service to that, you know, surveys of CEOs give lip service to that. But I actually think in a world where machines will do more of the technical work, actually it's the human stuff, the messy human stuff of synthesis, creation, empathy, meaning making, et cetera, that will actually be valued in the future. Right, right. So, and, the part, and the part that be least, least likely to be replicated by AI. Yeah, so every parent who drops off you know, Johnny or Sally, and then says in a conversation, when I say, so what are they studying? They're undecided. It's almost said with a sense of yes. apology, like it was right. a failure. I was like, good for them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we should decide. In fact, in some ways, I don't know that I'm decided. Right? right? And I think a lot I'm of I'm still undecided. I'm still undecided. <laughs> and the thing that's really, uh, you know, I think the, the people that I admire most in the world in many ways are the people who have a kind of insatiable curiosity. Yeah. Right. So, um, you you have many roles in your life, I would guess. You're, you're a, an entrepreneur, um, a leader of a large organization, um, husband, father, son, brother, motorcyclist, sailor, among other things, uh, English lit fan, and you're a giver. And as a giver, uh, you must get depleted from time to time. And when you get depleted, how, how do you get rejuvenated? Or how do you get refreshed? Do you do you uh, work out? Do you do yoga? Do you meditate? What do you do? So um, on that sort of day-to-day, week-to-week basis, uh, I am an avid racquetball player. Uh, I, I just, uh, for my 14th year in a row, won the uh, campus intramural championship in which undergraduates uh, worked their way to the ladder to challenge me. Wow, and, you won that. Uh, yes, I mean, it's, this is hardly a great sort of standard, but, but I, I, you know, the, the thing that I sort of recognize this year is that 
every year when that time comes around to play, I am a year older and they're still 19. Someday that <laughs> calculus is not going to work. <laughs> right. But for now, I sorry. So that exercise, I mean, I just listened to a podcast recently that talked about um, we still don't fully understand, uh, though we do in the, mo- in the sort of broadest level, but exercise is, is, is great for everything. It's great for your metabolism. It's great for your stress. It's great for your sleep. It's great for your mind. Like, and it's great so for your for brain, me, yeah. But it's also the place where uh, I, I like to think I hide this, but I'm intensely competitive, and it's the place where I get to be competitive with no restraint, right? right. I can play as hard as I want. I can dive to the floor. Um, I can talk trash and everyone it's in good spirits. Yeah. I think um, time with my uh, family. Um, so I, I have a very social job. And a lot of it, by the way, looks social when it's work. So there are lots of work dinners that to anyone on the outside would say, oh, this is great. You're at a nice restaurant. You're having drinks. Like, it's work. You're on. You're right. very conscious. And then there is a point, and my wife knows what it is, where it's like, I'm done with human beings. I, I don't want to see a single person. Uh, except her uh, or a kid. So that's that's like that time when like, no, get off to our house to Maine, get on the boat. Uh, best of all, get on a motorcycle, yeah. which doesn't allow you to think about anything but the curve ahead. Or if you do, you put yourself at risk. Yeah. And then for me, I have deep abiding passion for travel. So, and I think it's because travel like literature pulls you outside of your world, pulls you outside of yourself, allows you when you come back to think about it with a fresh perspective, appreciation, but also new ways of thinking about what you do every day. Those are the things really right? great. Get physical, spend time alone, yeah, um, and then and then get out and, and and be pulled out of the world that you inhabit every day. So, stare up at the ceiling with me. We close our eyes and we think. Here we are on March sixth, two thousand and eighteen. And let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. And magically, we wake up tomorrow, and it's March 6th, 2043. That's 25 years from now. And we're together on that day. And you say, Pete, remember that time you interviewed me for the the Private Enterprise Value Podcast? And I said, yeah. You said, you'll never believe it. I've had the best 25 years in my life that I ever thought I was going to have. I said, really? You said, yeah, personally and professionally. And I say to you, Paul, what happened? Tell me what happened. So professionally, uh, I would be able to stay in this job long enough to drive the reshaping of higher education that I think is underway. I, I think about this, you know, um, just turned 60, uh, which is weirdly still kind of just the average age of a university president. So I don't know how long one can, one can or should stay in these roles. But part of the urgency I feel in my work is not born of morbidity. It's actually more of a sense of there's so much cool stuff happening and about to happen. Like I want as much of it as I can for as long as I can. Right. Um, and we are, you know, I feel like our institutional flywheel is turning now at this great speed. And, and I want to be along for that ride for as long as I can. So I, I hope the answer when we're sitting down 23 years from now is that I had a good long run because I think for all of the volatility and uncertainty, um, the change that's underway in my industry, there's also unprecedented opportunity to get it right for lots of people. We began this conversation when I essentially described, though I didn't call it this, the American dream as we've always mythologized it in America. That dream is further and further out of reach for too many people. And we live to put it back within reach. I want to do that. I want to just touch more people. I want to impact more people. Um, and then I think, you know, from a personal level, I think um, the thing I get enormous delight and enjoyment from is um, helping people realize their journey and their pathway and, and to help make that possible. Pat and I were at a dinner recently, um, and it was a sort of wonderful uh, international group of people. Some are on the staff, some are students, some worse students are on the staff. And afterwards, Pat said to me, do you know that you're responsible for bringing everybody in that room um, into the United States and into their jobs at their current places? Like, I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah. Um, Great. And it was, you know, this young kid that we met in Aleppo just before the war who was the waiter at the Sheridan in Aleppo where we were staying and 
his education had been disrupted by troubles in the region, always happens in the Middle East. And, you know, we got him out before the war. And he's thriving, and he's got a, he's a professional living in Boston. He just bought his first house. He's doing everything we want immigrants to do in a country that was built on immigrants. Um, so I think it's not to valorize my role because they do the hard work. What we what I love doing is sort of seeing that opportunity to to make things happen for them, or to get them to set them free on that pathway. And I think. Um, the other thing is, I mentioned this because I've, I've been thinking about this in a really positive way lately. Uh, I'm generally an optimist, and I, I've decided I really particularly like 60 as an age. And, and I sort of was like, oh, like, you know, like you always have to get the stupid gifts when you turn 60, like, you know, the denture wear or whatever it is, uh, <laughs> you know, that your wise ass friends give you. But what I like about it um, is perspective. And I feel like I know some stuff uh, and, and, can, and can coach you know, young people on our team. So um, I, I think there's a phase of your career where you're so busy. I don't want to sound like I'm Yoda. I'm not. I'm still learning myself. But I think there's a phase of your career where you're so busy getting the work and driving the organization that, of course, you coach and you mentor, but you're really kind of driving. Um, and I think now uh, at this place in my career, and particularly with the team picking up more of the internal operations. I get to get back to that, that function of talent management I described, but the talent management makes it sound cold. I'm actually talking about those conversations, those interactions, those ability to make things happen for people that allow them to really realize their best self. It's, ge it's generative, right? It's generative, and yeah. it's impactful, yeah. and um, yeah, it's really is what makes what sort of makes life worth living. Paul, I want to thank you so much for your generosity and sharing with us your thoughts. No, it's my pleasure. Enterprise Value Podcast. Fun to do it. Fun to do it with you, Pete. Thank you.